Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking about some of the television that has been influencing us lately. Before we get into all that good viewing, however, what is going on? Matt, I understand you've been away to a convention. Well, as far away as going into (laughs) the next room in my house and then sitting down in front of the same computer for uh, hours a day, yeah. Journeys in your imagination. Oh, yes. Not as many ducks, though, this year as I would have liked. When we go to Contingency in Hunstanton, it is duck paradise. There are just ducks everywhere. I have a great big rubber duck that I've kept in the back of my uh, shop from webcam to remind people that this is, in fact, our friendly duck convention. I was about to say, yes, with you talking about there not being any ducks around, I was about to say, just look over your shoulder, Matt. Look over your shoulder. (laughs) It's sneaking up on you. If you hear a sinister quacking in the night, that's where it's coming from. You know when you've been ducked. Yeah. I spoke to Matt on the Sunday evening, I think, or the Monday, and he's like, yeah, I've run like, God, what was it, about 19 games in the last week? It was directly after the weekend with good friends. So in the end, I'd run 19 games between the Wednesday and then the week the following Sunday and played two slots in that period as well. Oh, God. So, yeah, I was uh, I was ready to hibernate by the end of that, but it was good fun. <laughs> I ran a couple of Call of Cthulhu scenarios several times over, ran a cult scenario several times over as well. And then, yeah, so I'm slowly descending into hibernation, I have this knock on the door, and I have this wonderful delivery to cap it all off from the realm of Kickstarter land after a ah, painful import duty to pay. And I'll probably post some photos of this afterwards. Ooh. Oh, wow. Well, that's rather nice. A sculpture, a small statue, well, about, what, about... Eight inches tall. About head size. Yeah. yeah. It is nicely occluding Matt's head. Yeah, about the size of a human head, a statue of <laughs> Cthulhu himself. Yeah, it's the uh, revised version of Stephen Hickman's Cthulhu statuette that he released, well, probably a couple of decades ago now, that he'd said that he'd always wanted to do some revisions to it and add more texture to various parts. So yeah, it went up on Kickstarter mm. last year, and now it's finally out there in the wild. So that's a resin cast? Yeah, it's a resin cast, and then hand-painted. Yeah, that's very nice. Yeah, kind of bronzy look. Yeah, it's got oh, like a dark, dark metallic. Hmm. Yeah, well, if you can take some photos of that, I'll put them in the show notes. There you go. And Paul, I understand that your scenario, Full Fathom 5, has been getting some play online in an actual play podcast? Yeah, a podcast called Distant Grey Gaming, an Australian show, Ah. uh, contacted me and were interested in running the scenario. And I did a short interview with them and they're putting it out in multiple parts. I think two parts are out as we speak. Probably as this episode goes out, it'll all be out. I'm not sure how many parts it is. By a strange coincidence, I thought I must listen to it, obviously. And uh, my son's got a rowing machine in his room. So I I was having a go on the rowing machine (laughs) yesterday whilst listening to Full Fathom 5. And it does start, of course, with the characters in a rowboat (laughs) chasing a whale. So uh, some kind of weird synchronicity there. But uh, yeah, it's an enjoyable run through. The Keeper, I must say, has got quite a different style to me. I like it. It's quite a laid back, relaxed style. And at first I was like, oh, should it be a bit more upbeat? But no, I think it works well. Uh, yeah, it's different to how I would do it, but that's cool. 
yeah, it's a good listen. Now on to our main topic, television. Well, last year we did a series of special episodes for our Patreon backers where we talked about the media we were consuming during lockdown and what was keeping us going through that initial rather weird time, as opposed to the current rather weird time that we're living in. I mean, it's all fucking weird. It's all weird. It's all weird. Anyway, so... Uh, We thought it would be nice to carry on with some of that stuff and talk about some of the media that we've been consuming that particularly is influencing us and giving us ideas for gaming and share some of those thoughts. And this episode, we're going to kick off by talking about some of the television we've been watching recently. Do you want to kick us off then, Matt? Yeah, sure. This is in context that I've been watching a lot of the episodes for this series while I've been working. So I've kind of had one eye on the TV, one eye on the computer and one eye on anything else. I kind of remember some of these from the dim and distant past because I did watch a few of them when they were on the first time, but I remember not particularly liking it that much. I thought the just the general look of it, the show, the aesthetics were kind of ugly and unpleasing and that I didn't really like many of the characters. But having gone back and now watched the whole thing from start to finish, Star Trek Deep Space Nine has definitely taken the top spot for any of these Mm. uh, Star Trek series that I've seen now. It's so good. Mm. Oh, yeah. Really underrated. I've seen a lot of people bash it online as being, oh, to boldly sit where no one has sat before, that they don't go out and do anything, (laughs) and that it's generally unlikable and dull as ditch water. But hell no. Apart from maybe if you take the Ferengi out of it, it'd be even better. What? Madness. (laughs) You can't take Quark out of it. I just dislike the Ferengi as a whole. What about that show where they go back to the 1960s? What? So there's an episode where, is it the 70s, 60s, 70s? Little Green Men. Yeah, with Quark, when they go back in time, like one of the classic episodes, and they come back to like 70s Earth or something. Oh, it's uh, 50s, I think. 50s, right. There's the Little Green Men one, I think, where they end up crashing on Area 51, or it's the Roswell crash. But there's also another one where they're all human science fiction writers in the 1950s, I think. There's a couple of sort of time travel ones. Oh, yeah. O'Brien can only ever write about robots. (laughs) Those were kind of the ones that I kind of maybe I liked the least. So I just don't like the Ferengi. They just, Mm. something about them just irritates me. So some of the other stories, like Trials and Tribulations, I I was rolling around laughing through that. (laughs) That was so good. (laughs) That is a killer episode, yeah. It really is. The way they integrate it with the classic episode. But even just where it's the case, hang on a minute, they're Klingons. Turning to Worf, we don't like to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that was brilliantly handled. (laughs) Just say, while we're pulling out characters, all that stuff with Garrick is great. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's good. He's good. Garrick, I think, is my favourite character in any Star Trek. And that, I think, is a big part of why Deep Space Nine, at least until Discovery came along, was my favourite Star Trek was the characters in it for the first time in Star Trek weren't all Federation ones. So you had all these perhaps less heroic characters or at least characters who existed more in Shades of Grey like Quark and Garrick or even the Bajorans. It moved away from that whole slightly sanctimonious side of Star Trek that it can be powerful and uplifting and and the morality side of it is definitely a strong selling point. But on the other hand, I don't know, I found that got a bit boring after a while, In particularly in The Next Generation. For me, Deep Space Nine was such a breath of fresh air. Mm. 
I mean, if you want sanctimonious, you don't have to look any further than Bajorans. <laughs> but that's the point. With the Bajorans, their sanctimony was portrayed as being a negative quality, or at least very much so. There, there was that religious hypocrisy and the conflict and the extremism and so on, and that made it interesting. Whereas with the Federation in The Next Generation, it was always, we're the good guys, everything we do is good, we're good. And I don't know, I, I just got tired of that. I can see that. They had a lot more interesting plots as well. The one that really kind of grabbed me and hooked me in for the rest of the show run was the very end of the first season where it was effectively a almost like Day of the Jackal assassination plot line where it was they were attempting to assassinate one of the Bajoran prominent figures that had come to the station and that they were trying to work out what all these system disruptions were because it was effectively the route that the assassin would have used to escape after they've shot the Bajoran ambassador or whatever role he played, I can't remember fully. It just seemed a lot more of an adult, a lot more complex, a lot more, Mm. in a way, kind of political show, that it definitely had a lot more manoeuvring than you'd find in some of the other episodes with traditional Star Trek antagonists. They took out a lot of the Romulan stuff until they they came in later and took out a lot of the Klingon stuff. And it just seemed to have this very new dynamic because Cardassians really hadn't been in the show apart from a handful of appearances in TNG from that point. And nice how they do bring some of the previous characters back, like Mm -hmm. Worf into it. I think that provided a good continuity with TNG. Particularly that it also harked back on a couple of instances to TNG episodes that I remembered and thought, oh, this is good. I wish they'd explore this more. And then they ended up doing it. Like um, Vashed mm. coming back to the Alpha Quadrant with Q after having been out in the Gamma Quadrant for probably about a year or so after her last appearance in TNG, where she went off to explore the universe with the infamous Q. Also, the Iconians from an episode called Contagion back in season two of Next Gen, this almost mythical race that had expanded across the galaxy and were able to teleport at will wherever they wanted to go, seemingly, that there was a Jemadar group that had found an outpost with one of their gates. And so they introduced Wayun in that episode as well. Oh, yes. One of the many characters that dear Herbert West played throughout the show run. Yeah. I mean, Jeffrey Combs played, what, four or five different characters in Deep Space Nine? Oh, easily, yeah. I mean, he had bit parts yeah. where he was just a character that appeared in one episode. Then he had the many Wayoons that he played. Yeah. Brunt, FCA. Oh, yes. Which I always <laughs> find very amusing because the uh, Financial Conduct Authority now has taken on the same acronym. <laughs> <laughs> But he does steal the show at times. Oh, I think yes. it's really good. One of the other things that I found was a nice little tongue-in-cheek riff that went all the way through, Morn. He was a great character. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I take it to you know what the reference was there. I don't know the reference no. to the name. I just like the fact that he was completely silent, that uh, people would only ever refer to him like, oh, he's such a great conversationalist. Oh, he tells the best joke in the galaxy. <laughs> mm. The whole thing was a reference or a joke on the character of Norm in Cheers. Which I only ever watched a handful of, so I never... All right. Yeah, yeah me too. I don't know either. Hence Morn being an anagram of Norm. Oh. I think it went over mine and Matt's heads. <laughs> <laughs> Wasted on us. That's far too much of a mundane, normal show for me to have watched. So, I'd love how they started off with the traditional format where you had the episode of the week where it focused on a different member of the crew. Oh, there was a different monster of the week problem or something was basically happening on a fairly normal, regular pattern. Mm. But then in the later mm. seasons, it started shifting towards a more single storyline, but individual episodes basically advanced the main plot as well as well as maybe having a secondary smaller issue that was happening in the background. So it definitely took on a different mode of storytelling. 
Yeah, it seemed like they were starting to figure out how to do a story arc. Mm. Yeah, I think that was partly because of the time it came out, because this was the 90s, and that was the beginning of the DVR age and when American television started going for this longer form of storytelling. Mm. But I think even after that, we saw a fair amount of that in American television, where they'd perhaps test the water more with doing sort of monster of the week or story of the week stuff to establish the series and then once they'd ascertained that it had got legs they start going into the longer form Mm. i mean we see a similar thing in a show you talked about matt with uh, supernatural Mm -hmm. right i mean a lot of those early episodes they do key into the overarching plot but a lot of them are quite episodic especially in series one as i recall and I think Buffy was a bit like that as well. I mean, there was an arc in the first series of Buffy, but... Mm, yeah, definitely. It was, it was still very episodic. As the series went on, it just became more and more arc-focused. And I think this is probably, you know, what can we learn for our games? <laughs> well, I think we can learn this for our games, right? If we're going to do a massive campaign, well, maybe try it out with a few, like, one-shots or little games first see how your players like the game the actual game system to start with how do they like their characters how do they like the setting are people into this style of game and then you're not too invested in it at that point you can always say okay well it's not really working we'll play something else and you don't have that feeling of failure that oh we tried to do this big campaign and failed you know you don't need to do that yeah. Maybe better to do a few one shots. Mm. We've talked previously about Walker in the Waste. Well, that kind of does start with pretty much like a one shot. Mm. I think one shot is often quite a good thing to start a campaign with. Equally, your scenario for Masks, the Prue chapter in, in Masks, Scott, mm. you could kind of play that. And then if, if people aren't really into it, you, you kind of know if they're into that game by then don't you once you've played that it's great as well from looking at a storytelling perspective that they start off with some very well placed but seemingly inconsequential references like oh yeah there's this group called the dominion yeah there's this group called the founders Mm. yeah they lay those seeds nicely early on and then they start blooming later and Mm. really it becomes then the main focus of the show uh, that kind of foreshadowing I thought was fantastic, the fact how it just grew and became the main thing. Feels a bit more organic. Yeah. I think you can do some of that in your own games without necessarily planning it all out. And I think some TV programs have done this well. Some have done it very badly. With Deep Space Nine, I don't know whether they'd started out with these really solid ideas of what the Dominion was and what the founders were, or whether they just planted those seeds and thought, oh, okay, we'll do something with that later, mm-hmm. and then developed it as it came up or what they planned on in advance i kind of guess that it might have been the former rather than the latter because it did take so long for them to get around to actually developing mm. those things at the other end of the scale you've got the fucking x-files <laughs> yeah which i have also watched all the way through in the last few months and didn't enjoy wow. anywhere near as much but there was definitely a point in that where i thought yeah the show could have ended here and it wouldn't have missed anything afterwards the one thing I really wished that they'd latched onto and done more with was stuff that was laid down in the very first episode about the orbs. Because I was expecting, mm, as soon as they mm. were saying, oh yeah, there's so many others, like nine or ten of them, or however many of them, and they occasionally pop up here and there and they each have a different power, I'm thinking, hey, they're going to start uncovering these slowly through the course of the series and it's going to reveal this bigger meta plot. No. No, they, they were plot devices in, kind of again, episodes of the week whenever they turned up. That was a really missed mm. opportunity, I felt. Yeah, I mean, it did sort of tie in with the larger meta plot about the wormhole aliens and so on. But but yeah, you're right, it, it wasn't fully explored. 
Considering these episodes cost like millions of dollars per episode, even back then, I think some of those episodes were like a million dollars each mm. or something. It boggles my mind that some of the plots and stories seem on the same level as our role-playing <laughs> games, yeah. you know? You kind of think, you know, they're going to have some really competent writers and stuff's going to go really well and all be really planned out to a really professional level. But some of it, it really doesn't. But Paul, that's not a reflection of the TV series not being well written. That's a reflection mm. of how good we are as RPG writers. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. What was I thinking? <laughs> I think the other thing that you can really take from Deep Space Nine as gaming inspiration is the character dynamics. Mm. Because, as I said, the characters there are all shades of grey, but it's more than that, that there are antagonistic relationships between what are, in role-playing game terms, player characters. They're not outright enemies, necessarily, but there are the points of friction or the fact that different characters don't trust each other mm. or have to earn each other's trust or come from cultures that have got long histories of animosity between them and have to overcome that. I think that is a really interesting dynamic to have in an RPG. I mean, you see that a lot in the games of Hot War and Cold City that we've played, for example, where it is that sort of dance of trust and mistrust. But I think even in Call of Cthulhu, there's the default mode where the player characters, the first time they're faced with an eldritch horror or bond together as a group and that generally, until Bats of Madness come up, tend to work together. And I think those potential conflicts, those points of friction, the differing agendas and so on, in the Call of Cthulhu group can add so much to a game and, and really bring it alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, anything where you've got like, different factions and groups as player character options is perfectly set up for some kind of conflict. It's what a lot of the newer World of Darkness games were all pretty much inspired by, that you had different mm-hmm. frictions between like clan and covenant or uh, path and order. There's always something pulling in one direction and something else pulling in another and another one that's pushing you in a third direction and so on and so forth. So yeah, anything with that kind of template is ripe for gaming environments. Well then, Paul, what have you been watching? I've been re-watching a show that I watched about 10, 12 years ago. And I'm sure it's a name that everybody's going to recognise. But it seems like the show that people talk about that a lot of people haven't watched. And it's The Wire. Mm. Uh, The American crime drama, it was released from 2002 to 2008. There were 60 episodes over five seasons. So it started almost 20 years ago. Blimey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that first show, almost 20 years old. Fuck. (laughs) I mean, what's interesting was, to me, is that I'm watching it with my daughter. She's 22 now. So she was like, what, four when it was first released. But we watched it and I, yeah, me and Lucy had sort of said to her what a great show it was. But obviously, yeah, almost 20 years old. So it's going to be really dated. Mm. And we've watched quite a bit of TV with Emily and her eyes, you know, some of those old shows are unwatchable. She definitely wouldn't watch Deep Space Nine, Matt. <sighs> she can't stand the ear men, as she calls them. So she's in there with Oh, you. the Ferengi. Well, yeah, she's got taste then, yeah. 
Also, she would berate it for being space romance. Oh, yeah, it was very much. It's not quite as bad as Star Trek Discovery. It's not feelings in corridors, crying in hallways and all that shit. It's actually got a bit more emotion and heart to it. But anyway, yeah, so we've watched like a couple of episodes of The Wire and she's like, yeah, this is not dated at all. It's it's still great. And she made the point like, yeah, it's historic because of the setting and primarily what you see is the dated technology, mm. the types of phones and so on that they're using. It's historic, but it's not dated in the terms of the production and the writing and everything. It's widely uh, talked about as the best TV show of all time. I think that mm. probably stands up. Certainly, you know, it's up there with the best. Yeah. If you don't know what it is, it's a crime drama set in Baltimore, a cop show, really, at its heart. Mm. And you could sort of say, oh, it's a cop show. We've seen loads of cop shows. But it's a bit like, if you'd only ever had mashed potato and then somebody takes some potatoes and roasts them and they're all like crispy and golden brown and soft and warm inside, you're like, what? This is potatoes as well. It's like they've taken those same ingredients. There's drug dealers, there's criminals and there's cops and everything and given you something totally different, something you've not seen before. The writer, David Simon, he was an author and a former police reporter, and he wrote this in conjunction with his writing partner, Ed Burns, and a, a team. And Ed Burns was a, previously a homicide detective uh, and a public school teacher. And David Simon sums it up well, I think, in this quote. He says, The show is really about the American city and how we live together. It's about how institutions have an effect on individuals, whether one is a cop a longshoreman, a drug dealer, a politician, a judge or a lawyer, all are ultimately compromised and must contend with whatever institution to which they are committed. And yeah, it's like all these people are in this melting pot together in this city. Mm. None of the characters are like me. None of the characters are like a family guy that sits at home doing some work, you know, goes and cooks dinner for the family and just does day-to-day -day things like I do. They're all totally invested in their jobs. If they're a police, then that's their life. And yeah, they've got like a partner at home, perhaps. We do see their home lives a bit, but there's also this great conflict with any life outside of being a cop. Same with the drug dealers, right? They're the, we see the drug dealers, and we see them on a par, really, with the police. It's not really good as and bad is. It's about people as people and the lives they lead and it's like a big venn diagram you've got the the cops you've got the drug dealers you've got the politicians in one season you've got the, the union men on the dockers the longshoremen and each one of these has got this tight-knit community and how they all overlap with each other as a show there may be other shows like it i haven't really seen one that is made in this way i'm never watching it and thinking oh i'm a bit bored of this character i wish they'd show me more of somebody else everybody is fascinating mm. and some shows go by and you hardly see much of the characters that you saw last episode perhaps there are some central characters but it's kind of there's a big range of characters in the show there is no one star not really no you can say well mcnulty that one of the police officers is the main character but less and less as the show goes on i mean there's i looked at a breakdown of who's in which episodes and yeah there's about 10 characters that are in every episode and mcnulty is in every episode and so is another officer bunk but as you're watching it you know it's called the wire right so it's about them setting or at least part of the show is about them setting up wiretaps on the drug dealers and so on 
But Bunk, who is a close colleague of McNulty, he's not even in that team. Mm. He's a cop. He's not in the team that set up the wires. And you've got some other great characters. Lester Freeman, he was kind of put down in the basement looking after evidence and so on because he pissed the bosses off. But then he gets pulled out to work on the wiretap. And he spends his time like making doll's house furniture when he's like watching the wiretaps coming in on the monitors. He's making doll's house furniture, which is a great touch for any uh, player character or NPC, I think. I'm also, I'm going to say there's a Matt Sanderson character in there. Uh Uh-oh. Somebody who is really good at seeing through puzzles and not really like you, Matt, because I don't think you really kill people, but Prez Belusky. Oh. Prez. Which I was thinking about, and I think, yeah, yeah, that is the kind of character Matt would play. Yeah. Somebody who, at the start, is a complete hothead, and to be honest, as a character, a bit of an asshole, but actually <laughs> really good at putting clues together. And they sort of, no, you can't go out anymore because you shot too many people and caused too much trouble. You're just going to work in the back room. I will neither confirm nor deny that I have killed people, but I can agree with the arsehole part wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> also, this is a show that I don't think it's trying to address issues like race and sexuality and gender, but it is. Mm, absolutely. You know, it, it doesn't wear that on its sleeve. But you watch it and it's got a very diverse cast. There's one character who is hard as nails. He makes his living going around robbing drug dealers with a shotgun. Massive scar on his face, a really dangerous character. And he's a gay man in Baltimore. But he totally goes against any kind of stereotypical TV gay character that we've saw in previous decades to that i think which is fantastic and the fact they made that character gay that's a great piece of writing and casting i think omar is one of my favorite characters in any tv program i mean you say that you never found yourself wishing that they'd hurry up and move past a certain character and i agree with that but on the other hand i was really waiting for any scene that omar was in (laughs) yeah there's a great (laughs) when he's up in court and being cross-examined the lawyer's like, so you make your living robbing drug dealers. Just how do you do that? And Omar's like, well, one day <laughs> at a time, I guess. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's like it doesn't end with cliffhangers. It's like chapters of a book. It plays through. Yeah. The pacing doesn't seem like regular shows. It doesn't spoon feed you. It totally doesn't spoon feed you. Mm. So I think it gives the illusion of being more complex than it is because it doesn't spoon feed you information as a viewer. It doesn't seem to have those cliche kind of spotlight episodes and things like that. That was all that kind of accepted wisdom about, oh, that's how you make a show. It seems to go against all that stuff, but at the same time be utterly compelling. So every time it comes to an end, you're like, oh, bloody hell, that's the end of the episode. Let's watch another one. In terms of the writing structure and the style of it, it is the closest thing I've ever seen to a novel on the screen. Yeah. It is novelistic storytelling. I think so. It's like the pinnacle of good writing, good performances, and I guess good directing. I don't Mm. know much about directing, but it must be all those things coming together. And what struck me, you know, watching it, even though it's about some really heartless, at times, people both in the cops and in the drug dealers and in the politicians and in the all the, all the different characters. At the same time, I think 
what you see is a, a, a lot of heart, a lot mm. of camaraderie between these groups of characters. You know, you, even like among the criminal gangs, there's a closeness among them. There's a kind of a brotherhood uh, among them. You're left kind of thinking, I wouldn't want to change my life and take on their role. But if I had to be one of them, you know, at least I know I'm not on my own. There's a, mm. there's a community there that they're a part of. You see that with the union guys, they're close near, even though like they're corrupt and they are tangentially, well, not tangentially, they're involved in people trafficking and so on. There's that closeness between the characters, which I think just gives a warm feeling to the show. And it's not just that, it's that for all the seriousness of it, and it is a very serious show, it touches on some mm. very serious topics. It's absolutely rooted in reality. As you say, I mean, David Simon was a journalist and this comes out of his journalism. But at the same time, it is not po-faced. I mean, there are some moments of real character humour in there. I mean, there's obviously all the banter between the police officers, which tends to be quite funny. The standout comic scene of the entire series for me is that one with Bunk and McNulty investigating the crime scene where someone was shot through a window. Oh. It's just this about five-minute scene of the two of them just going around examining this kitchen and taking measurements and trying to track where the bullet went through. And the only dialogue in it as they're sort of measuring stuff and so on just going fuck fuck yeah. fuck just every way you can possibly say that <laughs> i mean maybe that does stand out as being i mean it is a great scene i would say that's probably yeah. the only scene in there good as it is that feels a little bit contrived because obviously they have like oh we're yeah. just gonna have them use that one word for the whole scene that's probably the only scene that i feel that in and it, it's not that it takes me out yeah. of it, or that's a problem. I, but I think everything else, so many shows you watch, like I was watching Discovery last night, and it's like, yeah, I'm quite enjoying this, but oh God, it's so, it's either obvious or kind of labored or wearing its issues on its arm. You know, it's, it's just so a bit heavy handed at times or contrived. How long till Michael Burnham saves the day again? Whereas in this, I don't get that feeling at all. Maybe I'm just not seeing behind the curtain as to how it's contrived. Obviously, it is contrived because it's a manufactured thing, but it feels totally natural. It feels like it's totally representing urban life at the time and the mm. struggle all of those people have, all of them, all of their troubles and all their pains and all of their victories. But, I mean, commenting on the situation as well, you know, of the how people are trying to make things better, but how difficult it is and how they get set back and restrained by, as he says in that quote, by the limitations of the institutions that they're a part of. Mm -hmm. What we take from this for gaming, I don't know, because I'm not really, I'm not itching to play this as a game. I've done something like this, actually, by the sound of it, because I've not seen The Wire apart from one episode. I think I saw the last episode of the first season randomly when it was on <laughs> BBC Two late night. Mm. And the only thing I can remember about oh. it is that someone was in a hospital bed at the start of the episode. That's it. Mm. I can't remember anything else about sure. any plot details or whatever <laughs> went on. But I was saying that the way you're describing it like a Venn diagram, mm. that you've got different circles that occasionally they cross over, I've tried something like this, actually, going back right at the beginning of the episode with Contingency. But for the last four years, I've been running an ongoing cult game that's always held on the Wednesday night, where we've got characters that are proceeding through this longer story. But for each year, 
the something that I put into each of those games that then connects with one of the other non-continuing cult game that I run that year. So I've got loads of standalones where they all have little elements which all start crossing over with this wider plot. So and if they then play those individual one-shots, they start to realise that there is a much wider a plot and a much wider universe out there and that there are connections that they're starting to form between what's going on. So I've tried that, having connections between seemingly disparate one-shots and then so having this mm. one underlying thread go between them. And it's, it's worked quite well for me because people have gone, oh, I recognise that business card. Oh, I know that name. I also think that the other thing you can take from The Wire, I mean, this is just one part of it in isolation, is the criminal aspect of it. Because the way that it portrays the gangsters and the drug dealers and so on in Baltimore is, as you say, so very human mm. that this isn't just good guys versus bad guys. This is showing how people get involved with this world, why it may be the only option that's available to them. For a start, I mean, obviously humanizes a lot of people who in another show would just be one-dimensional baddies. Yeah. But also, I think it, it sort of gives you a, a structure that you can bring into your portrayal not just as a GM, but as a player character, if you're playing criminal characters, for how how it all might work. Mm. Yeah, I think it's fascinating how it humanises all of them. Mm. I mean, there are some characters there that seem despicable and unlikable, but then, you know, that other side of them is usually exposed. And yeah, there are no characters there that I kind of think they're an out-and-out baddie. Yeah, I mean, even characters like, uh, what was she called? Snoop, the very masculine woman who was working for the drug gang. Part of Omar's gang? No, she wasn't part of Omar's gang. She was, I think she worked for Stringer Bell, but she was one of the pair who was going around killing people and boarding up the bodies in abandoned buildings. I've forgotten that. I've forgotten her. Okay. Basically, she is someone who is employed by a drug gang to go around and kill people and dispose of the bodies, which is mm. about the nastiest profession you could have. And yet, I don't know, I just found her and I can't remember her partner in it, but you know, they just felt like people doing a job. Mm just an absolutely fucking terrifying job <laughs> it's reminding me very much of the opening scene of sicario with all the bodies found in the walls of the house out mm. in the desert there's plenty of room for horror in there one thing i would say if you haven't watched it and you're gonna watch it be prepared to stick with it for a bit because i found the accents and dialogue really hard <laughs> to tune my ear to so much so that i did put the subtitles on and then after a little while you're thinking oh, actually no I'm just going to, and there's, there are some bits where I'm like, what did he say? I don't know. Never mind. But you kind of get a feel for it. It's almost like you could, you could watch it with the sound off and kind of get the impression of what they're saying sometimes. And it's not just accent. Sometimes it's like slang and dialect and so on, which is, I found quite challenging at times to pick up on. But at the same time, it's all part of the rhythm and the beat of the people and the show, really. So, Scott, what have you been watching? Oh, like you, Paul, I'm going to choose a crime program. It's just something that I watched recently. Again, like you're talking about The Wire, it's an old favourite of mine that I rewatched, And I was finding myself thinking about gaming aspects of it all the way through. And that's Justified. It started in 2010 and ran through to 2015, ran over six series. 
It's based on a character created by Elmore Leonard, a character called Raylan Givens, who appeared in a number of Leonard's novels, Pronto, Riding the Rap, and he wrote a, in fact, I think the last novel he wrote, Raylan, which was sort of inspired, I think, in turn by the TV programme. But Justified, at least the pilot episode, was based on a short story that Leonard wrote called Fire in the Hole, and spun it out from there. So the basic setup for this is that you have this character, Raymond Givens, who was a U.S. Marshal. The U.S. Marshals are something that I've heard mentioned many times, but until I watched Justified, I'd never really considered what they did, because they're not sort of like normal law enforcement. They've got a very specific remit, and they're primarily there to track down fugitives, uh, handle transfers to and from federal prisons, and, uh, yeah, witness protection. So they don't necessarily solve crimes, but they interface a lot with people who have been convicted or on the run. You've seen The Fugitive, right? Uh, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. But I guess until I'd seen it in long-form storytelling like this, and it was very much brought up in terms of this is a normal crime, we won't get involved with this, this very specifically is our remit, that it hadn't occurred to me from a storytelling point of view how that focus made it into a very different kind of law enforcement and storytelling device than you'd normally see in a, a normal cop show. Yeah, like I say, this was spun off from a story called Fire in the Hole that Leonard wrote, and it was turned into this ongoing series by Graham Yost. Elmore Leonard did work on it, but unfortunately he died halfway through the running of the series, so his influence is there. And the basic setup is you have this US Marshal, Renan Givens, who is initially assigned to the Miami office, and he is sort of this throwback to the Old West, and it's Timothy Oliphant who plays him. So there's already echoes of Deadwood in there because he played the sheriff in Deadwood. He's playing the same kind of character, but in the modern day, in that he does see himself almost as an Old West lawman, which is further compounded by the fact that he's got some pretty serious anger management issues. And so the whole situation kicks off where he's dealing with this enforcer for a drug cartel and has done the classic Old West thing of saying, you've got 24 hours to leave town or I'm going to shoot you. And has gone along to, at the end of the 24 hours, this restaurant where the guy is having lunch and just sat down opposite him and is giving him the countdown and putting the intimidation on him. And of course, the scene ends with Givens shooting the guy. Obviously, his bosses aren't very happy with this and he ends up being reassigned. And he's sent to the office in in Lexington, Kentucky. And Givens comes from Kentucky, though he comes from Harlan County. He is resisting this because he's spent his life trying to get away from Kentucky and finds himself drawn back into this world of petty criminals out there, some of whom are members of his family, some of whom he's got history with. And it's a fantastic dynamic. The main antagonist in it is this character called Boyd Crowder, played fantastically by Walton Goggins. It reminds me a little bit of Breaking Bad, because 
If I remember correctly, in Breaking Bad, Jesse was only supposed to be in a few episodes, and the idea was they were going to kill him off fairly early on in the first series. Mm -hmm. But the character ended up proving popular enough with the writers and the showrunner that they, they decided they wanted to keep going with him. I believe the same thing happened here with Crowder because he dies at the end of the short story and the pilot episode is pretty much the short story. But they had him survive at the end because they clearly wanted to do other things with the character and he just becomes a recurring antagonist and sort of the backbone, the, the sort of counterpart to Givens all the way through. Going back to what we were talking about with The Wire and sort of presenting these antagonistic relationships in a way that makes for interesting long-form storytelling. And this is an absolute masterclass in that, because I Crowder as a character changes an awful lot as the series goes on, as he becomes involved with different people. I mean, initially after his near-death experience, he has a religious conversion and becomes a preacher, and then that all goes horribly wrong and he goes back to becoming a criminal. That then shapes his interactions with all the other characters around and he ends up becoming a corrupting influence on characters who weren't necessarily criminals before and it's just absolutely fantastic. But then you have all sorts of other antagonistic characters that come in. Like I say, when Givens's family, his father in particular was a petty criminal, which is one of the reasons why he went into law enforcement to sort of try to put as much distance between his family background as he could. But there are all these other criminals that are brought in. And this is what I love about Omar Leonard's writing. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast in that he does antagonists, he does criminals so well in that he has characters in there like Bord Crowder, who is an intelligent, charismatic person who he's a manipulator, he's a psychopath. He's, he uses the white supremacist movement to try to recruit people, but fundamentally he's not necessarily a white supremacist himself. It's just a really good way of, of finding people that he can get to do things like rob banks. But at the same time, you have some of the people in his orbit who are really fucking stupid. There's a character, for example, called Dewey Crow. He is a genuine white supremacist. I mean, he's a piece of shit in almost every possible respect. But at the same time, he is stupid, he is hapless, he is deeply unlucky, and he is just one of life's eternal victims. And he just sort of bounces through events like this pinball causing chaos. What Leonard does here or at least what the showrunners do, but what Leonard does in so many of his stories, is he shows how dangerous stupid people can be. Mm. Last time we talked about Omar Leonard, I mentioned this, and I'll bring it up again. The stupid characters in his stories do unpredictable things. If someone's reasonably intelligent or if they've got a plan, you can put in some kind of countermeasures or plan for what they're doing in response. But if someone is genuinely stupid, then... They're going to do things that you just never see coming, that are entirely counterproductive to them, that will wreck everyone else's plans. But by God, they're going to get people hurt. They're going to get people killed. They're going to cause chaos. They're going to get elected. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is particularly why I've chosen Justified as the program I want to talk about, because from a role-playing point of view, this series, I think, does more 
than any other program I can think of for showing how to present a variety of interesting antagonists and not just have them be thugs that turn up to shoot at you or whatever, but this mixture of people who are making plans, people who are undermining plans, people who are just doing short-term things and getting themselves into trouble, people who are backed into corners and doing really desperate things. But it's not just that, it's the fact that you have a lot of these characters operating in the same milieu and that their plans or their problems often overlap with each other. So you have your protagonist, in this case, who is going to go in and try to deal with a particular problem. But now there's like two other factions who are getting in there, screwing things up, and just the unpredictability and the chaos and the body count is mounting up. And this just happens over and over again in increasingly inventive and clever ways. And I want to steal all of it. Yeah, I think all too often as GMs, I see people playing the NPCs and, you know, the bad guys, in effect, as kind of masterminds. Mm. And the GM knows everything that's going on in the game. And it's easy to confer that knowledge onto the NPCs. Whereas the NPCs, like you say, they can be stupid. They can do stupid things. I was watching the Herzog documentaries recently on um, Prime, I think, about the people on death row in Texas. And one of the latter cases was a guy he'd had a hitman kill his wife. He'd recruited the hitman down the, his local gym. But this wasn't the first person he'd asked. He'd asked like about eight people to do this job. It's like, how stupid can you be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you say, stupid people can be very dangerous. Mm. Some of these criminals did some bloody stupid things. I mean, I'm sure under pressure, any of us, if we were doing something illegal and, and you're under pressure, you would make mistakes, but you, you might have had a good plan that goes wrong. But some of these guys just turn up with no plan mm. or a plan for chaos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> some people just want to watch the world burn. And, and what about an investigation into that? You know, you, mm. you're putting together the pieces of evidence you've got and you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe it doesn't because they were doing something completely ridiculous, you know, through the evidence you find. You try and deduce what the the criminals were doing, you know, what the what was being done here, what was the intention. And, you know, maybe that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly where you do have people who are making short-term plans, mm. where the investigators may be looking at a large-term problem, maybe looking at a big conspiracy or something like that. But you've got certain actors within that conspiracy who are in trouble and doing something desperate and expedient or something very selfish or whatever that doesn't fit in with the larger plan because it's not part of it. Yeah. But it's taking place all within that. And it's sort of, how does that fit? It doesn't seem to fit. What the hell is going on? And yeah. Yeah. I've got the first season box set up on my shelf still, and I've yet to open it. One of those that I will get round to eventually. It's all on Amazon Prime. I like having the DVDs just in case the, the net connection decides to crap out. At least I've got a backup somewhere in the in the region of about a year's worth of watching on my uh, DVD wall. <laughs> yeah, discs are good. Going back to The Wire, discs are good. You can get the box set of The Wire 50 quid online. Amazon, yeah, they've got it. Because I had a look to see, you know, where could you watch it online? Amazon, 20 quid a season. Oh, wow. It's like, that's 100 quid Ouch. to watch it on Amazon for streaming. It just seems like a lot of money. Matt, you mentioned it having been on BBC Two. Mm -hmm. Sorry to jump on your 
bit here, Scott, no, no. but I was just thinking about The Wire and, and how badly it was shown here. It was shown like late nights mm. on BBC Two after news night, so like after 11 o'clock, but at random times yeah. every night of the week for a few consecutive weeks. It was such bad scheduling. And I don't know if they ever showed all of it. And it's like you've got arguably the best TV show ever and you do that with it. It's just nuts. I remember back in those days, I was DVRing it. So the fact that it was mm. on late at night didn't really matter. But yeah, it was still bafflingly random. But yeah, going back to Justified, the other thing that I wanted to pick up on was, as I mentioned, the central character, Raylan Givens, has got this real anger management problem. If I were creating him as a character in Call of Cthulhu, the two main skills that I'd have in there are firearms, handgun, and intimidate. Mm -hmm. But the way intimidation works for him in this series is fantastic as a character, in that he almost never raises his voice. He very rarely actually seems angry. It's all under the surface. I mean, he's normally very sort of... You know that sort of fake cheeriness and camaraderie that people can put on that is just absolutely riddled through with threat? Mm -hmm. Well, this is it. It's sort of him smiling and laughing and so on, just as a way of demonstrating that if you put one foot out of line, you're not leaving here alive. And you're just desperate to keep them smiling and laughing. Yes. Because you don't want them to stop doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're frightened of what will happen then. Yeah. That sort of combination, that dynamic of that with these sort of stupid, dangerous criminals and so on, it is just some of the best character interaction I've seen on television in mm. terms of the, the writing of the character dialogue and just the way that situations bounce off each other and go in unexpected directions. The writing on this is just glorious. It is very much not a sort of serious crime show in the way that The Wire is. It is an entertainment right. program. But at the mm. same time, it feels convincing. It's very funny at times, even though it's not expressly a comedy, just a game because of the dialogue between the characters and the absurdity of some of the situations that come up as things go wrong. That sounds interesting about the intimidation. Mm. You know, just thinking about when we play intimidation as a player character, you know, we might be playing a jolly character, but then when you come to do intimidation, typically you wouldn't do what you just described. You know, you would get something threatening in your hand and, and lower your voice and like, you know, try to be threatening. But yeah, I mean, people can be intimidating in all sorts of ways that's a, a fun one you could sort of say you know i'm laughing and joking but i am trying to intimidate him do you think i'm funny <laughs> that, yeah. yeah funny how yeah with the way that the character of Givens does it, some of it is unsubtle stuff like, you know, he'll be doing all this while moving his jacket back and putting his hand on his gun and stuff like that. Mm. But at the same time, the veneer of good humour very rarely cracks. Mm. I've not seen Deadwood and I've not seen Justified. So every time I think of Timothy Oliphant, all I can think of is the husband in Santa Clarita Diet. Yeah, which is a totally different kind of character. I mean, <laughs> he's got a lot of acting range. And yeah, Santa Clarita Diet, I mean, that is just out and out comedy and he's playing a goofball. And yeah, in Justified, he is genuinely terrifying at times. Nice. And again, if we're looking at structure, I think, again, the structure of storytelling in Justified, it is classic American story arc driven television from the 21st century. 
But I think it's just a very good example of it. I don't think you'll see anything in it necessarily that you wouldn't see in other programs. But on the other hand, looking at the way that not only does each series of it have a fairly self-contained story arc and certain key antagonists who don't necessarily survive the series or make it on to the next one, but it does that trick of building on each previous one. So, for example, in the second series, it's very much about this one crime family in Harlan County and some of the things that they get mixed up in and the effects on surrounding characters. And by the end of the second series, the family is pretty much taken completely out. And that leaves this huge power vacuum, which then sets up all of series three, which is about dealing with that power vacuum. And so it is that combination of looking at it in role-playing terms, of having short campaigns that are self-contained, but on the other hand, taking the end of that last campaign, looking at the repercussions of it, and then bringing that into what you're doing next time with the same characters, so that it doesn't all feel like stuff that's happening in isolation, even though it is self-contained story arcs. Hmm. Just to wrap things up, I will say that this has been a particularly weird time recently for television. I think it's significant that all three of us have chosen programs that were on between 10 to 20, 30 years ago, because certainly the kind of television we're talking about at the moment is beginning to peter out because of COVID. A lot of the drama television, particularly genre television, yeah, I mean, we've seen some series come out recently because they're things that have been shot before everything got locked down and they've been in post-production. But yeah, things are beginning to peter out. And I wonder whether we're going to end up going back more and more to programs like these just because there isn't regular drama appearing on our TV sets. Hmm. Well, there's very little in terms of modern TV that I've watched anyway. If anything, this whole situation has presented me with a chance to go back and watch the series that I never had the time to watch previously in years gone by. There just wouldn't have been the chance for me to go back and watch the whole of DS9 or any other show of that kind of length. I'm halfway through, well, more than halfway through Voyager now. I'm slowly working my way through the ones that I never got to catch up to. Whether I do Enterprise or not is a whole different issue. My condolences. (laughs) I could never go back and watch Voyager again. Dear God, it was bad enough first time round. There's some bits of it which are all right. Yeah, there's some good bits, but... Now the Borg have turned up, it's definitely better. That helped. Mm-hmm. But God. Yeah, Voyager was patchy, but when it was bad, it was worse than anything else I'd ever seen. I mean, even including the really shitty early episodes of TNG. Ooh. And those were awful. Oh boy. That's another series I should actually go back and watch, thinking of, oh boy, Quantum Leap. That was really nice. I wonder how well that one's aged. I watched it a few years back and I remember it being particularly, oh yeah, I remember some of these. This is a bit ropey. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty ropey when it first came out, as mm. I recall. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you will also find links to all our social media presences. We have t-shirts and other merchandise available at our Redbubble store. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider backing us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. We offer a variety of interesting rewards to our backers, so please do check that out. Thank you for listening.
Well, once again, we would like to say thank you. Thank you very much well, for listening to the podcast in the first place. And thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon at any stage. And we have a number of new backers to thank by name. And starting off today with a big thanks going out to Gerald Brulette. Also, thanks to Jeff Barrell. And thank you very much to the wonderfully named Big Les. And thanks to Brian T. And thank you to Marco Herrero. And thank you to Ryan Blodgett. And thanks to Jason Seidel. Hey, here's a name that I know and very much respect here. Thank you very much indeed to Aaron Vanek. Oh yeah, thank you, Aaron. And thank you very much to Antonio Herrera. And thanks to Serge Butazine. And thank you very much to Gary Williams. And thank you very much to Kevin Hinners. And thanks to the singular Terence. And also thanks to Frederick Foy. And thank you very much to Stephen Lawrence. And thanks to Tanner Blue. And thank you very much to David Pernin. And thank you finally to Matthew Grikar. I hope I've got that right, and I hope we've got all of your names right. If we have completely mangled any of them, please do get in touch and we'll have another pass and try to do better next time. We're still working on about a 10 or 11% for pronunciation skill here. Well, that's all for today. We'll be back with more media shows as the year goes on. At some point this year, we're going to do another show looking at books we're reading and another one on films. Oh, I've got to find another small book I can digest in another next three months. Oh. <laughs> Don't eat it, read it. Can I suggest Finnegan's Wake? No. You can suggest No, that. no, no. Okay, well, till next time, folks. It's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.